Hello and welcome to How to Win the Lottery Season 3 bonus episode, Mount Chicago by Adam Levin. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I am Bobby. Ooh, I wrote the summary for the last episode that I was editing, which might be an episode that's not out yet. It's going to start with Shred's kickflip McTwisting his way onto the episode. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, but he's gone. He's on well, a, he's in a skate park somewhere, at least for now. Yeah, he's he's only but a kickflip away at any given moment. There, Do you know the video game series Skate? Like, there's Tony Hawk, there's also Skate. Like, it's a more... I don't... It, I didn't even play it. Like, it was after I was out of that phase. I don't. They announced a new one that's coming out that people have been waiting for for years. It's going to be free to play. Like, you know, it's one of those, like, you pay for cosmetic things or whatever. But my friends were joking that, like, you have to pay $50 to unlock the kickflip. It's just like... Mm-hmm. Imagine playing a skating game where, like, oh, yeah, it costs, you know, four ninety nine to heel, heel flip or kickflip or whatever. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. But it's probably not going to be that, but it could be. Did you ever play uh, Skitchin? No, that sounds familiar. I know what it is, but is it a game? It's a rollerblading game. Okay. Like, it's a rollerblading racing game where, you like, like... grab onto a car? Yeah. That's yeah, cool. like, that's... You, you You don't have to, but, like, grabbing onto the car help, obviously helps you go faster. Sure. I think, I think it was for Genesis. And you I, could, like, kick people and stuff I love like Tony Hawk, but did you ever play, like, uh, 720 or Skate or Die on the original NES? Yeah, sure. Skate or Die, sure. I don't know about 720. I think 720 was either the first one or the second one. It's like they're in a series. I loved I loved 1080 snowboarding for Nintendo 64 mm. too. That was a good game. I played like SSX and like there was another one cool I don't remember. A lot of good action sports video games. Yeah, which is actually a good segue into Mount Chicago, which is uh has I think no skateboarding in it at all. No, but Grant Park probably a lot of people have uh, skateboarded there. It's certainly a possibility. And there's the triangle of Mount Chicago that I'm sure that people would love to have you been to Chicago? You spent any time there? I have been. I've been. I went to the influentially or important or whatever of significance in the nar- narrative Lollapalooza, or as uh, on the X Files, the one episode he calls it Lollapalazzo. Been to Lollapalooza, and I've been there one or two other times too. I like it. Okay. I just haven't spent enough time there to really love the city. I was there once at a writing conference, uh, AWP, right after Adam Levin's. Uh, I think it was a short story collection, Hot Pink, came out. Okay. And I saw him read. Cool. Yeah, it was pretty nice. I've almost, and this is not true, but I've almost spent more time reading Levin's books set in Chicago <laughs> than I've actually been in Chicago. Because well, you've done the instructions twice and this once. Correct. And then that's about 2,000 pages. No, that's like almost 3,000 pages. It's because the instructions is like 1,050 or something, so that's 21, and this is 600, yeah, 2,700 pages. And they're not easy pages. They're not like I, you know, I've given my barometer of page a minute. I can't do a page. I what's can't your do these What's page. your What's your speed? Normally, a page a minute for these is probably like two pages every three minutes, maybe. Yeah. See, I'm a page a minute on something like Stephen King. Right. But like you get you get a little a little harder, and my my page count slows down, slows way down. So it's probably like two or three minutes a page on something like this for me. I do think this book is easier to read than the instructions. Oh, I disagree. Interesting. Why really? do you, why, why do you think it is? I think the instructions is so... I think maybe just the way that I am ingesting narrative, but I think that there's so many characters that I'm trying to remember who's right. who. Okay. And for the most part... There's two characters here you have to worry about. There's Solomon. Yeah. And there's after. I mean, there's there's more, but it's not it's not like it's Gurian and June and Benji and Bam and blah 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 blah. For the most part, I think no. I I, I well, I think that there are characters that are as important as Bam. The mayor. The mayor is of that level. Uh, Sylvie Klein is of that level. Basketball Schwartzy. Yeah, not so much. Uh, but he's the Bam. He's, he's he, the Bam's locum of this narrative. Yeah. 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 
what basketball player hurt you, Levin? <laughs> so that's what I want to know. By the way, we will be talking to Adam Levin next week. We have an interview with him set up. Because this book just came out as this episode comes out. This book came out two days ago. We got advanced copies. We read that. We read the book. We read the thing. And we're going to talk to him, which is very exciting because the I spent so much time with the instructions this year. Yeah. You read it three times in total. I've read it twice. I think, I think three times in total, yeah. That's a lot. We've read 5,000 pages of the instructions. Sure. And uh, yeah, yeah. let's keep doing page math. That's, that's a fun And thing. our longest episode was the instructions. So we're going to have a lot to say to him, I think. I sure hope so. Um, I but yeah, we'll ask him. We'll ask him what basketball player hurt him. Yeah, that made him turn against basketball players for all time in multiple narratives. It's probably a guy with the initials BS, Barnum uh, Slocum, sure. basketball Schwartzy. Sure, yeah, right. Yeah, we're getting right into it. Um, there, is there a favorite? Is there a famous basketball player? And like Latrell Sprewell is the only one with an S that I can think of immediately. BS. Ben Simmons. This is sure. uh, Ben Simmons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sixers. Yeah. Uh, Right. What is Mount Chicago about? Well, let's let, let's actually. Why? Uh, uh, I want to talk about why, like the gulf in in uh, oh, difficulty, difficulty. Of, yes. of reading between Mount Chicago and and the instructions. To me, the instructions was like an incredibly propulsive book, and though it employs some of the same sort of like recursive storytelling style, where it's yep. like very uh, at points conversational, where it, there are lots of like. Uh, pivots in the, in, in the mm-hmm. middle to go on like uh long diversions into like what the best kind of cookies are and things sure. like that yeah. that slows the narrative down significantly in a way that uh you know i th- that's not a positive judgment or a negative judgment but when i'm reading well, the it's, instructions, a, it's, a, it's a choice yeah, when, yeah. When, when, when i'm when i'm reading the instructions there's a much more uh, propulsive element where I'm like I'm always moving forward the engine especially when you get toward the more like action oriented stuff Mount Chicago doesn't have that Mount Chicago is almost all of the narrative is those kinds of stories that just like sort of they beat around a point and and you don't ever really know that it's going somewhere necessarily I mean you have this idea but with with the instructions you're heading toward the riot your head, yeah. Well, it, you don't know that, but yeah, you kind of do though. Well, I think so. I wonder. I wonder if I had an easier time with this just because I was more familiar with his writing by this point. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the instructions, the, like the second time, it obviously went down smoother because yeah. I knew what was coming. I almost literally just finished it when I started rereading it. Right, so it was like I know it's coming. I can sort of just take more in. I don't want to say that the stakes are lower here because I think it's it's equally depressive if you want to think about it in a certain way, but it's. It feels like it is kind of like more, it's more loosey-goosey, and it feels like each thing, like it feels like, and I don't, this might sound like a, a knock against the novel, but it feels like everything in the instructions is of the utmost importance, mm-hmm. and this just feels like, here's a story about a bird. Is that what you're, you're breaking it down to be in a story about a bird? No, I'm just saying part of it's a story about a bird, part of it's a story about beavers and ducks, part of it's a story about this and that, whatever, so right. I don't know. Right, it's a harder, It's I, I think it's a harder thing to... It's a much harder novel to say this is what this novel is about because it's about uh, a cataclysmic event. It's about uh, our relationship to pets. It's about uh, political correctness and um, our relationship to art in a lot of ways. I think in a certain way, and I didn't think about it till just now, but it's like The Leftovers. Like The Leftovers is just about like people die and what do you do when they're gone? Yeah. Like an unexpected sort of seismic word that they toss around here before they get replaced by the uh, the anomaly but the narrative begins that an earthquake kills a whole bunch of people in chicago yeah, it's a sinkhole not an earthquake sinkhole yeah 
well, it feels like an earthquake, whatever. Uh-huh. A sinkhole kills a bunch of people in Chicago, including the main, the narrator's entire family. One of two narrators. His wife, his parents, his sisters, his niece and nephew. Like, his whole family was at this place that he was not there yet. He was going to go to. And he just has to come to terms with what that means and how to move on, right? And that's, that's kind of what The Leftovers is about. It's like, nobody really knows what happened, why it happened. It's just that they're gone, and now we have to move on with your life. Yeah, I, I haven't read or watched The Leftovers, so I don't really know what you're talking about. Well, you know that, I mean, we've talked about it on here before. The premise is that just 2% of the population just disappears. Uh, it's y- like yeah, raptured, but maybe right. not raptured. And then the, right. the show and the book is just like people trying to make sense of that kind of unimaginable loss. Yeah. In my head, though, that show is about Justin throws dong flapping around when he's jogging in sweat. Big, big old dong. <laughs> That's not, not about that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Mount Chicago is about uh, the ways in which... I would say there are two main characters, right? One is... Well, three, really. One is... Solomon Gladman. Okay. 44 years old. Yeah. So there's basically... I think that it's worth talking about that there are... It's basically Adam Levin kind of current age and like younger Adam Levin. Well, well, that's something that we should... Are you saying the third main character is Adam Levin himself? No. Uh, There's Solomon, there's After, and who do you think is the third main character? Gogol. The bird. Yeah. The best bird in literature. <laughs> Clearly. I, I was trying to think of other birds in literature, and I'm like, Flaubert's parrot? I don't, but, like, who gives a fuck? Who's Flaubert? He's, he wrote Madame Bovary. Well, let's let... I'm sure there's famous pirate and, birds. And there's, there's, and Julian Barnes wrote a book called Flaubert's Parrot about searching for the stuffed oh, parrot. Jesus. Yeah. What a nerd. Oh, my God. I'm going <laughs> to fucking kill you. I, let's like first of all, you waylaid me when I was trying to like lay out the characters to to take us on a divergent path, which I guess is is consistent with the novel. So I can't really be mad at you. So we have two two main characters, uh, and then and then the bird. So uh, we have Gladman, who is a stand-up comedian and a novelist, and we have Apter, who is sort of a, a journeyman. Right, he starts out as. Uh, a college student who makes a ton of money um, running these... Uh, exploiting the alt-right. Exploiting the alt-right with these offensive calendars that eliminate Martin Luther King Day as a holiday. Makes uh, a fortune in Ethereum and then becomes a mayor's aide and, and just, like, funds a lit- his sister's literary press. There's, like, his his narrative is sort of uh, aspirational, right? He, in, 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 and in the meantime, he... We take a, a divergent path toward talking about behaviorism, which I have a lot to say about, actually. But well, secondly, go ahead. I'll just say, like, both. And I don't know. I, I wonder if it's if it's delved into. And I don't know that it is. It almost feels like an afterthought. But both of the narrators are almost indescribably wealthy, but through completely different means. And both kind sure. of unearned. One yeah, inher- sure. one inherits everything. Not not Aptors is more earned. Mm-hmm. But it feels like he just kind of, like, lucked into a thing. Like, he was doing a thing as a joke to piss off, like, you know, woke moralists. You see the thing about Jordan Peterson, the up yours, woke moralists. You see the thing going around? You're off the internet, basically, which is good. Yeah. There's been a meme going around, which is now going to be a month old by the time this comes out, which is terrible. Anyway. Yeah, I don't give a fuck about Jordan Peterson memes. Right right attitude. (laughs) It's crazy, though. But it's been put into, like, all sorts of video game things. I've seen it in a bunch of different places. Anyway. After does a thing just to piss off people, like woke people or whatever that annoy him in a school and then he becomes a millionaire because of it yeah and then uses that million that money to become even wealthier and then further and further and further mm-hmm. but he's not what you're saying is that he didn't he didn't earn that money through being a social worker which is essentially his his like job correct yeah 
Solomon seems to be like a, not a struggling author, but just like sort of a struggling author who then inherits, what is it, $15 million worth of like money and property because mm-hmm. his entire family dies and there's no one else to have any of it except for him. So mm-hmm. they both go from being like a normal person in the narrative to being almost incalculably wealthy. Like that's an, sort of an interesting exercise that's an interesting writing exercise, right? Because it's like, if you give your characters a ton of money, there's a bunch of slight, like, there's a bunch of stuff you don't have to worry about. It frees right? them, so, it frees so, them yeah. and you, right? Aptor can do anything now. Yep. If, if Aptor were, were nailed down to uh, uh, a certain amount of debt, maybe he would not have been able to leave being a social worker to... to uh, work for the mayor eventually work for the mayor but he leaves he, he leaves social work before he starts working for the mayor right mm-hmm. he's, he's like on an in-between space they're just kind of lounging and figuring out what, what he's doing going around telling his anecdotes at, at bars to to strangers do you think who would you rather hang out with after or solomon solomon you think because after seems kind of annoying I don't know that I'd say that Aptor's annoying, but Aptor has like a, he's got like a Robert Redford thing, right? Like where it's just like, the reason why I dislike this guy is because it seems like everything always goes right for him at every. Do we talk about that on the podcast? You just tell me recently that the the Robert Redford thing. Oh, you just, you texted to me because I was asking about, I was watching the hot rock and I was like, do you like him? And you're like, no, because he was asked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so the story. Robert Redford, uh, uh, this is, I, I read Mike Nichols autobiography, not autobiography, Mike Nichols biography. And Robert Redford was auditioning for the graduate and Mike Nichols didn't really want to want to cast him. And Robert Redford, uh, you know, want to know why. And, Mike Nichols asked him if a woman had ever rejected him before, and Robert Redford's answer was, "What do you mean?" Right, because it was he had he had like no concept of a woman turning him down, and you can see that in every single one of Robert Redford's yeah. roles. He never seems like a guy that anyone would ever reject for any reason whatsoever. Right, uh, whereas like Dustin Hoffman kind of wears that rejection on his face. Sure. Right, he he's like uh, especially in especially in The Graduate, which is um like that role is meant for a west coast california boy surfer and dustin hoffman being like a new york jewish kid is is like sort of in a lot of ways woefully miscast in that movie um but it like increases the sense of alienation that he feels when he's in california because he doesn't look like someone that is like born for that environment and like stereotypically we don't imagine people like Dustin Hoffman living in Southern California. So that's why Aptor That yeah, so 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 Aptor has like a Robert Redford vibe to uh uh to me, which is interesting because it's like his success throughout the novel I think has to be juxtaposed and weighed against Gladman's sadness and the bad things that happen to him. Yeah, cuz it's not it's not failure, it's sadness. Yeah. Right? Because like no, he's successful. I mean, it, yes. I, like whether he be sh- struggling financially before the the anomaly or whatever, he still has like people are. It's, it seems like almost everyone we meet in the novel is an obs- either an obsessive Gladman fan or uh, hates him because they think that he is uh, anti-Semitic slash bad for the Jews. Solomon is to a certain extent Adam Levin, even though the first chapter of this book says none of this is yeah. real. This doesn't. This is all made up. People might have been modeled after people I know. 
this is not me, even though in the middle of the book, he's like, hey, there's a picture that might look like Solomon. It's like him now, then this is, my, you know, whatever. And just like, it's this whole, like, is it him? But in the narrative, Solomon's first novel is Damage the End, which is right. basically the instructions, right? Um, yeah, based on the title, I guess so. And then I got the sense that, like, Addie, who was after Sister, kind of, like, founded McSweeney's or she's some kind of like McSweeney's sort of I, 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 yeah I think yeah, this is too I think you're trying to reach too much into the but I think but I think stuff. that there's something there about the autobiography I think the autobiography thing is something that is core to this no it, it it is but it is in that it's it's like it's a metafictional trick right like and 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 like I feel like saying trick makes it sound like it's a pejorative but like what he's doing is He's taking. He's obviously taking from his life to create these things. Uh, like French wife. His wife is the novelist uh, Camille Bordas, who wrote a novel called How to Behave in a Crowd, which I'm, I'm in the middle of reading. It's it's quite good. You know, it's Chicago. They're they're Jewish. The uh, uh, he he shows us all of these things that are similar. He's a, a novelist writing within this in a way that seems like it's similar to, to Adam Levin's life, and he is writes that forward or the the introduction to say like none of this is autobiographical right right which does nothing but call attention to how autobiographical it is right so it's like it's it's there to plant the seed in our mind that it's autobiography and there's enough autobiography there to make us consider the emotional idea of the author of this book fantasizing slash writing through a panic attack about everyone he loves dying Mm -hmm. which makes us which i think is immediately more emotionally effective than us imagining characters uh uh going through this panic or uh, like going through this sort of um xanax induced state of of like suicidal ideation because i think that works because like the first thing that happens in this narrative is that they all get killed. It's not like we get to know them and get to know his relationship. Like we sort of know that after the fact, like you can imagine putting yourself in the position of like, what would you do if everyone you knew and loved died mm-hmm. instantaneously mm-hmm. and you had no control over that? Mm-hmm. Couldn't, could, didn't get to say goodbye, but we don't know what, who Sylvie is. We don't know his sisters until like hundreds of pages later, basically. And so I think well, that's apt or not glad. Uh, oh, Sylvia. Yeah, sorry, not Sylvia. I wrote down. I don't remember his sister's name or his. What's his wife's name? Daphne. Daphne. Similar. Okay. Uh, but like, I think the shortcut works because we don't know them, and so it's like it it specifies immeasurable tr- tragedy mm-hmm, mm-hmm, quickly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I I felt sad when I was when I was reading it because he immediately makes that correlation between uh, author and character, even if it's saying like, even if it's specifically saying these people aren't me, and right. here are the differences between our lives, and here are the similarities. It, it, you know, there's weight to that because it's like, oh, the author has a parrot named Gogol, and this character has a parrot named Gogol, and he's writing about the worst day of his life up till the point of the anomaly being when he accidentally clipped Gogol's. Uh, Foot. foot instead of his wing and like you're you're reading that and you're like oh this like very much reads like lived experience yeah so in those areas which read like lived experience it makes you extrapolate to all the other areas where you're like maybe these are also lived experience which 
you would probably not do if he didn't spend a bunch of time saying this stuff is not me and this didn't happen. Well, there's also, and I think it's in the same chapter, because there's like most of the chapters, and again, this is something that I just focus on because I like the structure of it, but like most of the chapters are pretty short and there's a couple very, very long chapters. And after that first very long chapter, he basically pops back in like, hey, I don't live in here again. Let's talk about some things. And then in there, he talks about things. I think it's there where he talks about like the face of a narrative. Mm -hmm. And he talks about who are you assigning the face to? Are you seeing, like... Because it's what you're talking about. It's like, as when you're reading a novel, you kind of assume, to a certain extent, whether and then maybe it gets proven incorrect quickly or whatever, that the, 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 no, the novelist based one or more of the characters on themselves. Yeah. And he's saying that kind of both of these are me, to a certain extent, but also it's not me. But then he talks about damage the end or the instructions or whatever and he and his wife both say that it's vincy and i was just like this is interesting like the whole like that be again even though it's like distancing itself well, yeah, from, I, like, you're you're misremembering because he says that he's vincy but his wife, but his says, wife says she's vincy but that's what I, that's what i'm saying like it's he's distancing the self-referential or whatever this is not about me, but he's also saying, like, it's kind of all about me. Like, it's a weird, like... It, it also feels like he's saying all all authors do this and all literature is about the author, right? The right. way that he says in Infinite Jest, the face characters, I think, are Pemulus, Gately, and Orin, of which I agree with one of those characters being the face character in Infinite Jest. He's, he talks I have not read about, that yet. Yep. Um, he talks about uh, Blood Meridian. He talks about works by Gogol. He talks about um, Solinger and, and all these things. And then he emails his friends and his friends are essentially like, what the fuck are you talking about? So it, it, it like he's saying, okay, I'm not writing autobiographically, but all writers write autobiographically. But these people are saying that these writers are not writing autobiographically, and that right. and that to assume that they are is childish. At least that's what one of them says, Christian Thibodeau, I think, who is a novelist himself, whose work I haven't read. It's I think that's I think to me that's the most interesting part about Mount Chicago, and it really has nothing to do with the story itself. I think it's, sure. to me what was most interesting is the analysis of fiction as autobiography. Okay, well, well, what do you think, since since you're saying that it's an analysis, what do you think that the outcome is? What do you think that the he's actually saying about I don't fiction know. as autobiography? I don't know. I think it's something that, with movies, for instance, there is a tendency to say, like, oh, the director must have like had an idea here. Because like, there's a screener, like, there's a whole like process. Like, There's a lot of people at their hands. But I feel like with a novel, there are editors, of sure, of course, but it feels like it's much more one-to-one where they're, most of what you're seeing here is from the mind or the whatever of one person. Yeah. I just, I, I like the metatextual. I don't know if there is an outcome. Do you think there is, is he saying something here? Is it just like, I just like thinking about spending time to think about a thing that I might have passively thought about, right. but consciously, even though even though he's saying, don't do that. This is not yeah. true. Yeah, but is that's the, the, the uh, Foucaultian idea of like not being able to, imagine a negative right the second that he says don't do this your mind is immediately attracted to that thing and and it's all you can think about right no i don't i i don't think there are any answers because i think in the very beginning of of the book when he's in the uh when he's in the 
introduction, something that he says that's really interesting to me is like people ask him where he gets his ideas from. And what he says is that he's not interested in ideas. He's interested in undermining ideas, uh, which, right. which makes sense to me. And, and, and like to me, that means that something like, you know, what does autobiography have to do with fiction necessarily? Like I'm not so much interested in that answer as I am in that question. Well, there's always the sentiment, I think, whether you're writing prose or a movie or whatever. It's like write what you know. And I think even in yeah, here, right. I think that Gladman, you mentioned, you described him as an author and a stand-up. I think he's a stand-up. I think, if I remember right, he's a stand-up because he wants to write about a stand-up. So he starts, he goes out to get experience to write a thing, and then kind of falls into that life. And then and then decides that he prefers performing to, yeah. to the, the novel. But, like, I think that there is a, I think there's actually a pretty direct correlation between stand-up comedy and writing novels maybe more than any other art except for certain kinds of music which is that um they are maybe the only art forms where they're completely non-collaborative yeah right i mean stand-up comedy so obviously like people write for stand-up comedians and they write jokes and do things like that and like in a sense like you know, novels are uh, – th- there is, like, a collaborative effort between the – with, like, the design on the cover of the novel and things like that. And that influences the art in a certain way. But for the most part, they're constructed by a singular voice. Right. Uh, I think I think that's the, the correlation between Gladman's movement from novelist to comedian. But I'm also interested in this idea of creative art turning into a performing art. Uh, also – and I don't know if this is intentional or if it's not intentional. I don't really read what Gladman's doing as stand-up comedy. Like, it seems so much more to me like a uh, it feels like Spalding to... Gray monologue or something like well, that. Well, there's that. I was I was picturing him on stage as like a Neil Hamburger kind of, mm-hmm. where it's like he's, he's going up there to not necessarily antagonize, but he's yeah. going up there with a point of view and to not necessarily entertain. Well, certainly in the beginning uh, when he's like wearing... Like over the top stereotypically, right? Uh, like a Jewish outfit. Yep. Uh, like that. That feels like he's doing an Andy Kaufman character, which is like I don't remember if he's referenced in the instructions at all, or if he's referenced in Mount Chicago. But like, I feel like Andy Kaufman is in that uh, Adam Levin milieu of of like pantheon of comedians that he brings up multiple well, times. Yeah, it's the same. The same people who are referenced in. The instructions are also once again here. There's DeLillo and there's uh, Philip Roth and there's Sarah Silverman comes back here and there's Seinfeld and there's Sasha Baron Cohen, Larry David quite a bit. Yep. Um, yeah, that's actually something that I really love about these books. Bubblegum is like this too, a little bit. Um, yeah, I wish I had time to read Bubblegum and Hot Pink, but I just yeah, didn't. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, you're asking, that, that would be asking for like a month, another month of your... Uh, time, but like something that I really like about these books is that I feel like I'm in conversation with someone who loves books. And also, incidentally, it doesn't have to be like this. I would probably enjoy it otherwise. But someone who loves books and like has pretty similar tastes right. with with me. Yep. Um, it's a little different for uh, comedy. You know, I'm not that big of a Seinfeld guy, for example. Why not? But there is there's something interesting to me about because this this takes place i think in 2021 and 2022 even though he probably wrote it a couple years ago or started writing it probably longer before that whatever but there's a what i was sort of surprised by although not really surprised by is that he references as like an influence on gladman or whatever in in different ways louis and i'm like louis was this was written after louis had been canceled and so to include him and like you and i have had like in the tub talk 
group and like on those uh, podcasts or whatever, we've talked about Louie and like appreciating Louie and liking Louie, even though we're not supposed to like Louie or whatever. And I think that there's something honest. Yeah, he's a genius. There's no, right. I, I, I don't think so. Like a lot of this book is about not a lot of it, but some of this book is about cancel culture and yeah. about the, the, the like, perf- and that's, and that's never brought up in terms of Louie in this at all. It's just him as a comedian, like a comic. Yeah. Maybe he, his, when he's taking the class in stand-up comedy, it feels like maybe someone brings it up. The, yeah, there is this idea in here, and there's the chapter where they talk about the, the – there's, like, the stand-in for that Woody Allen documentary, but it's, like – The Me Too chapter. Yeah, but it's, it's like, also – it's not the actual Woody Allen documentary. Instead, it's a movie made where Matthew McConaughey is CGI'd to, like, act as Woody Allen. And that chapter is titled Me Too, which is, like, a, an obviously, like – provocation that's an like an obvious provocation yeah. he's he's playing in these in these uh realms where he's like clearly he knows what he's doing yeah he's he's, he's it's a very conscious effort or decision yeah. and and i said this to you when we were reading we were, we were texting about it and we th- there's the chapter where after creates the calendar yes and that chapter is largely a satire of social justice, right? There's a lot of, like, social justice warriors, however you quote-unquote social justice warriors. Because um, he's in college at the time, right? And there's yeah. a group that is, like, basically meets to talk about how they're offended. It's not not why they're meeting, but it seems like when they meet, they talk about all the things in the world that offend them and what they can do about it. Yeah, they're, like, quote-unquote woke scolds, and they're, um, it's almost like competitive grievance. Like, mm-hmm. who, who can be the bigger victim who can who can who's part of a more uh oppressed minority group etc etc and like when i was reading that uh i think what i texted you was that these are a a lot of these jokes are jokes that i may i make like with uh, if i'm with Kristen or someone like that and like i i would make a lot of these jokes but reading the chapter made me feel uncomfortable because when you don't know the person that's making those jokes it feels like you don't really know why those jokes are being made. You don't know the intent. Like it could be like it could be that uh the person like if a person makes a they them joke, it's like this person might hate non-binary people or trans people or they might be making fun of people who are putting pronouns in their bio as a them waving a flag to prove that they're right. like one of the good guys and it's more about them than it is actually about making other people comfortable mm-hmm. and it's like it becomes very very complicated because there are something that is true you got to look out for the male feminists right because those are the those are the most dangerous people because sure. they, they're like getting into these groups and exploiting them etc cetera, etc cetera. that group is 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 ripe for satire and Levin is is satirizing them, but because I don't know him, it becomes something where I'm just like, wow, what is going on here? Right. And it's hard to it's hard to like get a context on that and feel good about that chapter. Do you think that's the point of the book? I think very much it might be. And I I, I want to say that me being uncomfortable with that chapter, not a bad thing. Right. I think it's like totally like, like that is like a totally fine thing for an author to do to like try to make us feel kind of squiggly about things like that. Because I think you're texting me with something like, I don't know how to feel about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Which is, um, I again, as far as literature is concerned, 
that's like a feeling that I kind of chase sometimes, not knowing how to feel about things, yeah. right? It can feel like um, good to be like to, to, to be pushed to that edge and, and be feel like a little concerned. I think there's it's it's similar. I'll come back to that, but there's something similar to that I that I'm looking for where it's like I like finding things where it's not clear if the person knows what they're doing or not, and it's mm-hmm. just like is this intentionally supremely out there or is this just like you have not consumed enough to like, like there is, this, oh, I'm trying to think of the movie. There's some movie that I watched. Where I was just like, I don't know what, like this is the either the worst movie I've ever seen yeah. or the best movie I've ever seen. And I don't know why. And I like that feeling. Oh, I feel that about Jean-Luc Godard movies all the time. Cause like I watch those movies and I'm just like, a lot of this is cool and very stylish, but like, I like don't, like, he's doing, like, satire of, like, French politics in the 60s, and I'm just like, I just don't have that knowledge to understand what the fuck he's talking right. about at any given moment. So, like, I don't, I don't like, I watch those movies, and I'm often just like, well, this is a classic. The five stars on Letterboxd for everybody, and I'm just like, I didn't understand one bit of this thing. Right. Well, I think also with that, it's like people, and this also might be, I don't know that's something that is addressed here, but I think it's something that he would address elsewhere. I think there is a definite mentality of people watching a John Luke Godard for the first time mm. and then going to letterbox and be like, I can't be the one to give it two stars. <laughs> yeah, sure. Everyone else gives it four or five. If I give it two, sure. I'm going to out myself as an idiot mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. as like a mm-hmm. cynic or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm just like, I might just give it four and a half and not review it. But like, so I won't like draw attention to it. Well, the same, the same way that people with, with comedy will be like, um, probably give like a I, I bet you if you uh, don't do this now because it'll take up time but i bet if you looked at the last louis ck special on letterboxd a bunch of people would be like one star this guy's a sexual of sex course, of course uh with like nothing to do with the content of of what he's doing and like I don't, I, honestly i don't blame those people for that it's like it is you know no but it's also performative because it's like you doing that it's not going to change anybody's mentality they're only the right. of, of louis yeah yeah they're going to maybe change a view maybe negatively or maybe positively like oh this guy gets it or just like, what are you doing? Like, I see that. I'm just like, I'm annoyed. It's like, don't do this. Yeah. Well, this was always my thing. Like, I, I've, I've, I've said this multiple times because I feel like I've had the Woody Allen conversation a bunch. And sure. I think I think it's appropriate because of because of what happens in this in this text. But like, I think of, uh, you know, Woody Allen and quote unquote cancel culture and the idea that a lot of people were like, I'm not going to go see Woody Allen movies anymore. Which to me always felt really performative because like, I'm like, you weren't going to see fucking Woody Allen movies anyway. I've been to the movie theater to see Woody Allen movies and it's like mostly 80 year olds. Like it's not like all these people that are that are at saying they're not going to go see Woody Allen movies. They weren't going anyway. Right. And also like as far as cancel culture is concerned, like it's a very capitalist idea. Um, So like for the progressive or liberal or socially minded left. It doesn't really make sense to me because, number one, an interesting thing about not going to see any Woody Allen movies anymore is that you're erasing the entire career of Mia Farrow. Right. Um, with the exception of uh, Rosemary's Baby, which was also made by a sex Lawrence criminal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, get rid of that guy, too, I guess. And, and like, a lot of other people, like, film is a collaborative art. You're getting rid of all of the work of all of these people. But also, you're doing you, – essentially, you're saying – Art is capital, and 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 the way that we we are going to deal with this is by boycotting it and not pay attention to it. So you're saying like the worst thing that we can do is not feed it any more money. It's like also Woody Allen doesn't need any more of your money. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. Like really, if you really want to analyze Woody Allen movies, 
or if you really want to like hold Woody Allen's feet to the fire, watch his movies and analyze them and think like th- there is value. Sure. If, if you if you think that he's a bad guy, which he, I think he is, there's value to looking at art made by a bad person and trying to find like things within that. It's way more valuable than just ignoring it or pretending it doesn't exist yeah. in every way because it's by not having a conversation about it. Right. It's cowardly by be by trying to be bold. Mm-hmm. You're opting out of the conversation. Yeah. I say this having um, opted out of a lot of conversations myself. Sure. Like, I, I, like, it's, I don't... It's just it's easier to do it that way. I, like, I don't fuck around with Dave Chappelle because, like, I th- th- that conversation is so infuriating to me that I can't even... Emmy nominated for that thing this year. Yeah. Crazy. But I think that's, I think that's fascinating. I, I also think going back to when we brought up about the, like, someone who loves books and someone who loves art and, like... It's the same thing with the music, like the way that he, because in Mount Chicago, they are planning after his idea for the mayor, because the mayor's just like after 9-11 with Bush's, you know, approval rating skyrockets. They're like, oh, my God, we're uniting as a country. We have to go against the And then people are like, wait a minute. And then slowly creeps back down after the sinkhole, after the anomaly, the mayor's approval rating goes up, 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 up. And then it keeps crashing down. And after it's like, all you have to do is say you're going to have like this, you know, you're going to create a new park where the old one was or where the, you know, the anomaly happened and you are going to, it's not going to happen now, but you're going to do it and you're going to make this and you have to make promises and it's going to sound great and people are going to love it. That's the idea. And the reason I bring this up now, other than just to say this is a thing that happens in the novel, is that they're putting together the lineup for this event. (laughs) And he says... We'll get a band together with Ad-Rock, Mike D, Tom York, and DJ Shadow. And I'm like, maybe my two favorite bands, for sure my favorite band is Radiohead. Maybe my second favorite band is the Beastie Boys. And I just saw DJ Shadow in Spain, and I don't, I'm not into that music generally, but I would say he's probably my favorite DJ. Well, but you know, you know, Uncle, right? Do you know Uncle? Wait, who's an uncle? Un- oh, so Uncle is uh, J- James Lavelle, and then DJ Shadow worked with with that. And Uncle is a project that, like, you might know Rabbit in your headlights, the Tom Tom, yeah. Tom York song. So that's Uncle. But then uh, Beastie Boys are also on that album. So that's like that's kind of what that feels I did not like, know that. Like okay, but I was just it was like combining all these things that I truly love, and uh-huh. I'm like, uh-huh. wait a minute, uh-huh. and it's just like it's a cool thing where it's like. Again, I think this goes to not knowing where you were saying before, I don't know how Adam Levin feels about cancel culture. I think by having read all of his stuff, he might be fooling us, but I think we know who he is. And I think even though it's not explicitly clear because we do not talk, we're not friends with him, we don't know, I think you have a sense of what he's making fun of in the Me Too chapter. We might be wrong, and if we are wrong, it'd be devastating, but I think (laughs) we know, and I think it's the same kind of thing here, just like, we have the same taste and stuff. Like, it's a cool thing, whether it's comedy, whether it's music, whether it's books, yeah. whatever. I'm not that wild about Jane's addiction. Neither am I, but <laughs> it's clear why. You, you, you said, I, I cracked why he's yeah. in there. I'm like, well, they bring up later. Oh, I think I, I think I also text messaged you where I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, in what world is Jane's addiction headline over Kanye West right now? There's also a whole thing in here with, like, the guy that led to Ari Gold on Entourage, like Ari Emanuel, right? Like, yeah, because he's, he's Rahm Emanuel's uh, brother. Like, there's a there's a blending of reality into this fiction that feels like it's it's what I, I like it. I like, mm-hmm. 
it makes it feel real in a way that other people striving to make a real narrative doesn't feel real. Because, like, this is my world. Like, I live in the world of pop culture and media and stuff like that. And so, like, blending in, like, we're in L.A. now. We're just, like, hanging out with celebrities. We're just like, okay, this is kind of cool. I like that it's – it's a, it's a, as a book, it's kind to Entourage, the television show. I compared Entourage this week, which I think we have talked about in our in Tub Talk, uh, comparing Entourage to Succession where it's like every season kind of starts and ends in the same place and nothing really happens, just like things get slightly, they slightly inch along. They're like, that's a pretty damning thing to compare something to Entourage. I'm like, Entourage is not bad. Like, it's got a weird toxic culture around it. Yeah. But Entourage as a show is perfectly... It's fine. Fine and fun. I also, and I think I've probably said this in the podcast before, the trailer for the film, one of my all-time favorite trailers. Because <laughs> that's... Do you, do you remember the trailer? I, I don't. Do you want me to explain this or no? No. No, okay. don't. <laughs> don't do it. Go watch that trailer, though. Yeah, we've gotten we've gotten off track. Uh, we've we've talked more not about the book. Let's talk about actors' anecdotes. And I think we okay. one thing we brought up before, and I asked you who you rather hang out with, Solomon or After. You said Solomon because After sort of seems like the Robert Redford thing, but After's whole thing is telling me it's like five or become six anecdotes by the end of like the things that shaped him into who he was. Oh, one thing that was funny about this section was like he's like in eighth grade and he's like had sex a bunch of times. I'm just like, who are these kids, man? These Chicago kids are wild. Yeah, the, his middle school endeavor, he's in love with a girl named Sylvie. Mm-hmm. Sylvie wants him to take her virginity. He's just like, no, I got, a little, I got a list of reasons why I can't do this. Yeah. And she's like, all right, I'm going to go sleep with basketball Schwartzy, mm-hmm. um, who I wrote wishes he was Bam, Bam Slocum. Like, he kind of sucks. Like, Bam is like, I know that Bam is kind of like a questionable, like, maybe a bad guy, whatever, um, or at least opposed to our narrator. But Bam is kind of like a golden god of, like, this is what people should aspire to. Basketball Schwartzy sucks. Yeah, and he uh, basketball Schwartzy hits uh, after in the face with his book bag, and the zipper on the book bag tears his cheek, which leads him to a smile that is hypnotic and engaging, and is his his quote unquote eye smile, which is the influence smile, the eye move in the influence move, right? And yeah, not the Tyrus smize. It's kind of the smize, I guess. So, I don't do you know what that is? Tyra, Tyra Banks has a whole like smile with your eyes. It's the smiles. It's like it's something from Top Model, anyway. Okay. But this is also the first in After's life of like inheriting a great amount of money for a thing that he did not necessarily earn. Like he suffered oh, through that's it. True. Which, yeah. He. But he is awarded like thirty thousand or hundred thousand dollars or whatever mm-hmm. that like his parents put away for school, but he eventually gets hold of anyway or whatever. But it's the first in a long series of things where it's like he did a thing and he like he deserves to be compensated. But it's also like disproportionate amount of wealth for the thing almost yeah especially since it rewarded him with uh an influential face that gets him jobs and 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 makes him an incredible behavioral psychiatrist or something like that and he talks about how a lot of people try to take credit for the smile Mm -hmm. like they're all trying to like shape him or like use it or manipulate it and like claiming credit for his ability yeah that's the first endeavor that's the first anecdote second one is deciding where to go to college okay fighting with his parents about it because he wants to go to the one school because that's where solomon went yeah his parents like don't do that it's weird that you keep calling him solomon call him gladman because he's never called solomon in the book they call him gladman over and over again always using his last name and that's when his parents like if you go where we want you to go to school we'll give you the money so like that sort of factors in there third anecdote is starting the calendar company Fourth one is on Sylvie's recommendation, investing in Ethereum and then founding Antic Books or helping a funding his sister to fund Antic Books. And the fifth one is becoming a behavioral therapist. 
And the sixth one becomes working with the mayor, even though it's not explicitly like described as one of his anecdotes because it happens yeah. while we're reading the narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you make of any of those? What, what what do you think is the important one? What do you think is the what? What do we get out of them? I think they're all important. I think the, I think the most interesting one, the one that sets up the narrative in the biggest way, is probably the calendar company because it, it okay. like we were saying before, frees him to do whatever he wants. Yeah, and then the behavioral stuff is is really important because sure. it's like um, it actually gave me sort of insight into how I was reading the instructions, which is something that I'd rather talk about with him than in this uh, tune in next week yeah um but he, you know he, it's it's like sort of learning how to influence people right it's that real like dale yeah. carnegie uh how to win friends and influence people but he's he's doing it by subtly you know reinforcing positive feelings that people have around him yeah um but like the interesting thing about that to me is the this idea of burnout among the social workers and also the the psychiatrist like he leaves because he didn't think that there well he leaves the the, his like social work rotation because he doesn't think that their empathy is in the right place right they're all empathizing and this goes back to the to the uh satirizing uh woke scolds etc um he thinks that that, like their post-suicide empathy for these people like they're sad because they killed themselves whereas he's sad because of the conditions that led them to kill themselves right right it's the difference between like having known someone who committed suicide and wearing that as a badge uh and talking about it as though like it was something that affected your life uh immensely versus like actually having sympathy for the person when when they were hurting and doing things to help them and i think there's a real cynicism here that i don't i can't really comment on because i'm too far from it but about he's like i don't feel like anything i'm doing as a therapist like helps because like the teachers even describe it like 75 percent or whatever the person like 75 percent of people like having no therapy is the same thing because it just takes the time or whatever he's like well why are we doing like if there's a real well, that I mean, in that part, he's specifically pitching the idea of behaviorism, right? Because yeah. he's saying like th- those statistics are relevant for the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Behaviorism has much better, uh, a much stronger statistic because it's shaping outcome. the brain in a different way or whatever. Yeah, because it's focused on outcomes rather than necessarily right. the things that got you there. But there's also like you were saying before about the cynicism and like the suicide. There's the whole like thing in here about what the definition of survivor is because he sees a post on Facebook a kids like I'm a 17 time suicide survivor and she's like I yeah. don't know what that means. I had a yeah, that's another section that I kind of had a tough time with because when I was reading that I was like okay, I understand this is this is a satire of mm-hmm. this kind of idea. And then it moves through this idea of the both the mayor and his wife sort of coming to accept this idea of sur- like coming to accept that version of survivor. And like I found that kind of beautiful in its own yeah. way. But then in the next chapter, it's made fun of so much that I'm like, "Oh, I read that completely wrong." Well, I think there's something and I've said this maybe before on here. I think I even said it's either either Rundy or Beth in one of the interviews we did recently where I was just like, I think that there is something, oh, it's to, to Beth. I'm talking about the cults and talking about like self-help mm-hmm. and stuff. I'm like, I think there's something that like life is difficult enough. If anything gets you through this life, whatever, if going on Facebook and just saying I'm a 17 time suicide survivor and you like feel better by like the likes and the comments and whatever, as long as that's not directly hurting someone, fine. Although that's a weird kind of example because it might be hurting someone because like if someone who's actually a suicide survivor or like their kid killed himself or whatever, it's like... what? It's very weird. There's there's a murkiness, but the reflexive of making fun of it does sort of change 
But also the reflexes and making fun of it all, like, that happens after that also comes with the truly stupid thing that the mayor sa- is saying about like an uplifting Auschwitz memorial. Right. right. Which is like it's so it's tied in with that. So, so I thought that whole section was going to lead to a thing that didn't happen. I thought they were going to lead toward a thing either in the execution or in the computer program running the thing where after found out that Gladman was like the number one survivor of the thing. Oh, okay. And we never get to that point. Yeah, yeah. Because the idea the mayor has that came to him in a dream, because that's how you know it's a good idea, is that everyone who was a survivor is going to have their name inscribed on the wall. And the name is going to be bigger proportionately for how many people they lost. Truly a bad idea. It's the worst idea. <laughs> but it's it's leading to a thing where Gladman, who has like 10 or 11 people he lost, I mean, there might be more, but it feels like his name's going to be the biggest on that wall, probably. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought we were getting to a point where after it's like, holy shit, this guy that I've been like, whatever. Yeah. And we don't get there. So like, it's going to say, it's going to say Gladman, but with like letters the size of that, like love sculpture in Philadelphia, yeah. where it's just like taking up so much room. Right. And I really thought we were getting there, and we don't. Like, yeah. the computer program never finishes running, or at least as far as we know. He finds out that Daphne died, right? Sylvie mm-hmm. died. I'm no, confusing no, the names. Daphne. Now. Daphne. Sylvie is a Sylvie's friend. Sylvie's after's friend. Boy, these ends, these names ending in E. Like, I don't ha- I don't know anybody named Sylvie or Daphne, so I wasn't able to, like, ascribe okay. whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I thought, like, it, it seemed like... And maybe that's a nice pivot. Maybe that's a nice reversal thing that, like, I expected to happen and didn't happen. Well, I, yeah, I think the, the I the, like... I think something that's interesting about this book is that it's mostly unpredictable, except for one thing, which one which thing? has the an Owen Meany esque the shot uh, aspect to it, which is that in a very very early chapter you learn that Gogol is the only thing that's keeping gladman from killing himself right because he knows that if he killed himself gogol would pluck himself to death because parrots we haven't talked about gogol at all but gogol is gladman's parrot and he has you know parrots are attached to their uh owners they they think we have multiple chapters here that are from gogol's perspective where gogol uh we learn that gogol's like the way that he thinks of his flock which is uh Gladman and then the other people that are around Gladman and there's like a hierarchy where Gladman is at the top and Gogol is second and then other people fall beneath them but when Gladman leaves Gogol for a couple of days leaves him with a student uh Gogol begins to pluck his uh feathers out because from anxiety and stress and and um once once they're plucked uh birds this is stated multiple times in the text birds have a very difficult time with uh, blood clotting, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that he'll bleed to death uh, just from plucking himself. And so Gladman knows that he can't kill himself because if he kills himself, his his bird, the thing that he loves more than anything else, the only thing that he loves that's still left right. is going to die. That's a chapter. It's incredibly moving in the very beginning of the book. It's really, it was the first time in this book where I was just like, the kids Holy still got shit. it. Like, like what well, this is this. I, I, I think I texted you. And I said it gave me like a little creative writing orgasm to like have it, it like end with that button where it's just, you know, that's and that's the only reason that Gladman hasn't killed himself. Um, and it's really, really incredibly moving. And then later on in the text, we learn that through 
behaviorism mm-hmm. through through mm-hmm. the through the influential smile that Aptor has. Mm-hmm. Uh, he enters Gladman's house, and Gogol immediately sees him as another member of the flock because of the way that Gladman is interacting with him, and uh, Gogol allows Aptor to preen him, and he preens um, he preens Aptor, and they uh, he and Gladman clip. Gogol's wings together and doing in, in a sort of reflection of the chapter about behaviorism, Gogol starts to imitate the way that Aptor smiles and Gladman eventually agrees to do this thing at the end, but he says, um, we got to, you have to take uh, Gogol from me for, for a little while. So I can write. So that I can write. Yeah. And Aptor agrees. And I don't know how you reacted to that, but I was not, I didn't, immediately that didn't immediately signify to me that Gladman was going to kill himself but when toward the, the either the next chapter or the chapter after that when it starts the mp4 chapter when it starts with Gladman saying like these are the last words that you'll ever hear I was like oh right because after can can take Gogol so like there's no reason for Gladman to stay alive anymore so that, that that was but the, but that's a structure that really like I, I was just like holy shit it did it again I wasn't expecting that and it got me I don't remember if it's before or later but he talks about how he he's unable to write and he, the reason he gets Gogol is because he's unable to write and he becomes obsessed with parrots or with birds and yeah he's, he's watching going, YouTube videos he's going all YouTube the time. so instead of writing and he he essentially gets Gogol because instead of spending forty five minutes on YouTube he can just like look up get that hit of you know adrenaline or whatever. And then go back down and keep writing. And so there, and I don't remember when in the novel that happens. It might be in that long section in the video that he's, because it's an MP4, like in a video he's making, he's leaving, right? But there's, I think that's also a tip off that like, he gets the bird because he can't write without the bird. And then he's, he can't write with the bird. So just like, Mm -hmm. there's more to it than that. So yeah. But that's the, the, the it's interesting because like I feel like the book I I mean I I I don't mean this in an insulting way I feel like it's a sloppy book by design yeah yeah exactly it's a shaggy dog story right it's like it it has all these discursive parts but then it, it immersed within that shaggy dog story is like like a very very strict skeleton that leads you to that like direct result from the, from the very beginning well There's, in that. In Nothing that, else that could have brought us there. In that scene, I had texted you. That's the scene where I thought for a second that they might be the same person. Yeah, right. Because I think we just read A Touch of Jen where it became a sci-fi novel. Mm-hmm. And the way that, like, Gogol is, like, kind of cold to most people and, like, slowly warms up to them. But I felt like the way he wrote Gogol warming up almost instantly to after. I was like, and there's also the chapter earlier where like, it's basically like, hey, these are both based on me. Like they look the same or they look whatever. Here's what they might look like if you're picturing them in your head. I thought there was a chance that somehow, some way, yeah. he was a younger version of Gladman. And then it would kind of make sense. So I like sort of wasn't expecting a sci-fi pivot, but would not have been surprised by that. Yeah, I uh, that to me is a little like, um, you know, like uh, Donald Kaufman's screenplay and adaptation. I know you're talking about, but how do you mean that? It's like the killer and the victim are the same people. It just feels the three, yeah. yeah it, it's like a uh, would you? So would it's you like have, a joke. It's like you, a bad joke. Would you have been annoyed if that was? The oh, case? I would have been. Yeah, I would have been horrified. I, I would have. I would have been like, I don't fuck this. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Part of me was like, Gogol is a very important character. Yeah, and 
for most of the novel, it's not really clear why. It's just like, oh, this chapter's from the point of view of a bird. Isn't that weird? Gogol's on the cover. The cover is just Mount Chicago and there's Gogol on there, right? And I'm like, oh, like Gogol is the key to unlocking that they're the same person. But no, it's, it's Gogol is the key to like freeing Gladman of his last well, responsibility. Well, I mean, I mean, like I don't, when I say, when I say fuck this, I, I, I mean, if that had been made literal in the text and explicit, sure. yeah, 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 yeah. I think there is a very sense in which they like are the same person and that's triggered by that it is me it's not me it is me it's not me introduction right um and all the autobiographical details so you know that that does exist on a very real metatextual level but i think within within the book if it had been like and then their bodies started merging and it was like i would have been like ah all right i'll finish it because i have to for the pod and then around the corner there was a spot and out of it came sylvie and daphne merged into one I also think that there's a certain thing, and maybe I'm just, maybe this is a, 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 a synapse misfiring my brain, but just having watched Cha-Cha Real Smooth and Cooper okay. Ray's character talking about how, like, he's saying this, I think, just to, like, basically try to sleep with Dakota Johnson, but he's like, you know, I, I do think that, like, there's a certain number of soulmates you meet. And I think that there's something that, like, even when losing everyone and everything that means something to you, there are still people in this world that, like, you can truly connect with. And I think there's someone that Gladman finds after. Like, they're... That after was like this devotee to Gladman, and Gladman didn't know he existed, but then he just finds this person who like connects and understands with him, and more importantly, his bird likes. It does seem like there are a lot of those people out there, though, because most of the people that we meet seem to be Gladman devotees, right? Like Sylvie. But that doesn't mean that Gladman's going to like them. That's true. But like Sylvie makes that joke to... to uh after in the very beginning like when they text message he doesn't mention gladman to her at all and she makes a joke from one of gladman's youtube routines i thought that's very sweet like them like lying in bed later just like watching his videos on youtube i like that a lot yeah it's like that episode of uh, joe para where he and joe firestone are sitting on the bed together watching youtube videos showing each other what they like it's very sweet rest in peace joe para talks with you for now one one, one of the one of the great sitcoms of this era do you want to talk about the behavioral therapy part I feel like you want to talk what? about that. We, we touched on it. I don't, I don't know if you went into I, I as think, much detail as I you wanted I, to. I think I mainly did uh, okay. talk about it. The authoritarian ther- therapy thing seems terrifying to me in a way. I think that like it goes into it a little bit. I don't really understand this because I haven't done any research. It's not was never part of any of my academic whatever. But I think that there is something about behaviorism that people are people find icky. Can you, uh, can you really describe what behaviorism is? I don't know that I can. I think it's 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 like changing behavior and cognitive behavioral therapy is like changing the behavior to like realign the way you think about something the theory that human and animal behavior can be explained in terms of conditioning without appeal Mm -hmm. to thoughts or feelings and that psychological disorders are best treated by altering behavior patterns yeah um so i think a lot some people find that manipulative maybe which is how the professor introduces it yeah and scares off like seemingly like most of his class shows that you can manipulate people to do a silly gesture just by inclining some favor toward them over and over again i think after says this to Lindsay biss who is his at one time girlfriend slash fiance um he says behaviorism is the one way not only to view life or not only to view that kind of like therapy, but it's also the only real way to look at literature and the only real way to look at love. Because a pretty frightening part is the part where he's talking with with Lindsay and he 
starts manipulating her by like when he realizes that when he uses his soft voice he can this is scary stop arguments yeah but if he just says the exact same things or nicer things in a different tone of voice she gets pissed off she reacts in a different way and so he becomes a person that is not so much reacting to her the way that a normal person would reacting to her but react to her the way that maybe a client of his uh he's he's treating her as though she's a client of his and trying to manipulate her behavior and figure well he's doing it to to sort of try to salvage their relationship because she accuses him of having like a lack of emotional intelligence and she's like ready to leave him and it doesn't seem like he super cares about her no i don't think he's trying to salvage the relationship at all i think he's it seems like he's just he's fucking around to just see if he can well i don't even know if he's i don't i wouldn't refer to it as fucking around i think once he realizes that he can do that it ruins the relationship for him because he you know it's 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 similar it's an imbalance of power yeah it's similar to his the, the way that he feels burnout with um doing the behavioral therapy in the first place which is that he lacks empathy he starts to see her not as like a human being but as right. a, a person that can be like puppeted around through like changing your tone of voice or changing your 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 movements which is a really frightening uh frightening idea i mean i guess it's like it feels like it's also definitely true right i'm kind of glad that i don't know how to do it that i don't have that kind of training you cause... did say that you were glad that we were not talking to Levin in person because you thought he was going to manipulate <laughs> yeah. you yeah he could do he could do a, a behaviorism to me and make me <laughs> Make me kill the president, right? Like a, like a Manchurian candidate. Of course. What do you think of, I'm sure, I'm sure this probably exists to some extent, what do you think of the bartenders with seemingly mythic, mystic capabilities and uh, abilities? Yeah, it's just weird fun. Like, that's just like a fun detail to put in. So in the instructions, one of the things that we talked about in the episode was that, like, magic and miracles exist in this world. Yeah. That Gurian's father invokes the Torah basically and like sets a man on fire. And there's also like the parting of the Red Sea basically in, in Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. right at the end. Yeah. So it's like there are things in this world, in this narrative that exist that happen that like can't really be described other than to say miracles and God exist or whatever. Here it's not that to that extent, but it's just like this guy's like, yeah, you know, I'll I'll make you exactly the drink you want. And if you don't like it, next one's free or whatever. And it's just like but all these people have, like, basically orgasmic reactions to, like, the greatest thing they've ever drank. And there's, like, only, like, six people in the world who can do this. I'm just like, this seems fake, but also the coolest thing in yeah, the world. Yeah, it's fun. It, yeah. Seems, it seems, like, very much like a Haruki Murakami short story to me. Like, I, I feel like that would be something that he okay. he wrote specifically. Because he, he, like, dabbles with that kind of magical realism in a fun way. Because the bartender is also a boy who likes trains? Yeah, yeah. No, that's just one novel. There's, you know, he's got a lot of other stuff. Well, I like burning, barn burning. And I read Hard Boy Wonderland forever ago. That I need to. We need to do a good Murakami book for this podcast. Maybe, yeah, we could. We, we don't can have figure to. It out. One thing I want to ask Levin about. I don't know if you want to discuss it at all here. Is that the terrestrial anomaly happens on the same calendar date as the Gurionic War, November seventeenth, which is also Hebrews eleven seventeen, which is the. Uh, when Abraham offers Isaac to God. Right. I don't know what to make any of that. I, right. I, 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 I know that they all come together, but I don't, I'm not mm-hmm. really sure yep. what it is. I'm just like looking through things that I jotted down. I think there's an interest, again, going back to the pop culture, the media element, just like Levin having good taste in things, but the mayor talking about the only good biopics. 
Yeah. But he lists things that I don't think of as biopics. Oh, they are, they are though. Like, but I don't think of, like, best biopics. I don't think of The Wolf of Wall Street, even though it's probably my favorite biopic. I don't think about that within that context. But he says, Raging Bull, Social Network, The Fighter, The Wolf of Wall Street. He hasn't seen Itania or The Irishman, but he would have liked them, too. But then David Mamet convinced the mayor to not like Spielberg's movies because not like Schindler's List specifically. Schindler's List was manipulative or whatever, right? Yeah, because it makes it it makes uh, non-Jews watch it and feel immediately like they would have been the one hero, the one person that stepped right. in to save all the Jews, when in reality most of them would be Nazis. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, which is accurate, right? I, like something something that is interesting about this book is taking characters like David Mamet who is, has like a very specific voice. He does this a little bit in the instructions too because you have that conversation with Philip Roth. Um, people like David Mamet or people like uh, Ari Emanuel and like he gives, the, he, he writes them. He writes those characters, which is like a fascinating thing to do. Yeah. I'm wondering if when he's writing Ari Emanuel, if he's really writing Ari Gold, right? If he's just like taking notes from Jeremy Piven's character. Well, I think to most people who read, like people don't know who Ari Emanuel is, like it's, unless you're a client of his probably, but everybody knows Ari Gold. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, Jeremy Piven, notorious Chicago guy, uh, Rahm Emanuel, mayor of New York, mayor of Chicago, not New York. Fuck. That's such a... All right, let's start the podcast over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Up, oh, going home. See you later. End of podcast. Um, there are two more things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about acid. Okay. Um, which feels important to, sure. to the text, mm-hmm. right? In that um, one of Gladman's major epiphanies, his, his life... Uh, his life changed. That's what what he calls the second worst day of his life. Well, it was the, it was the first worst day until more recent worst days. Mm-hmm. And it's a bad trip. Right. And the bad trip is is reflective of, again, we return to the autobiographical introduction where Levin himself talks about the acid that he's done and the bad trips that he's had and how those bad trips came to him and how he th- he thinks that the bad trips, which he refers to as panic attacks while you're on acid. Um, which is like the, the most succinct way I've ever heard it described. But like, I haven't done acid, so I don't mm-hmm. know. But if, I was like, oh, I get what that means now. Like, I understand that. Yeah. Um, he he attributed, attributed it to his guts breaking down, which is also kind of how Gladman attribute, attributes it, right? Well, yeah, the whole Gladman thing is he has... he. A lot of shitting at the end of this book. Well, that's the other thing I was going to say. So we we can tie those two together. Sure. I want to talk about acid, and I want to talk about shitting. Shitting feels like an immensely important part of the end of this novel, which is well. Also, Gogol thinks he's shitting for a while too with the egg, yeah. right? Which is like it's interesting because obviously, like you want to, I want to look at this from a Freudian perspective, which is hilarious because I think that probably. I'm guessing Levin would want to smack me for that interpretation because the book is so caught up in behaviorism rather than psychoanalysis, right? Which is like the feels to me, again, not an expert, feels to me the opposite of what behaviorism is. Um, Well, the good thing is he won't hear this before we talk to him, so he won't (laughs) know to smack you. Also, um, we're remote, so he wouldn't smack you anyway. So there's the anal stage in in development in, in Freudian analysis and uh like the anal stage like things that happen to you while you're shitting um or how you as a person are treated as a young person around shitting or how you develop around shitting and whether you develop like shyness around or something like that like that determines whether you are a 
compulsively neat or compulsively disordered person. Mm-hmm. That's the psycho uh, psychoanalyst way of yeah, describing. Yeah, 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 and that's why we, we call people anal right. if they're if they're a certain way, right? I would be tempted to layer that analysis on top of this stuff, but I'm I'm not going to. Well, I think there's something, and I don't know if it's a psychoanalysis thing, but in the like, maybe it is, but the whole like the way that a child behaves, Gogol is an adult bird, I guess, but he does not have the full comprehension well, of she. whatever. She, sorry, she. Yeah. Even though Ap- after calls him a he and she, no, no, she, but Gogol thinks she's either dying or becoming a person or maybe I'm just having a hard shit, and then she re- she just lays some eggs. But it's like it's that whole like I don't know what's happening in my body. Like I'm aware that something's happening, mm-hmm. but I don't have the way to process this. Gladman describes or explains how a bird who has never laid eggs can eventually lay eggs under certain conditions or whatever. So like it makes sense, but it's just like this has never happened to me. I don't know. And Freud would have a field day with that bird. <laughs> yeah. Well. Also, and then children. Well, we'll get to the children stuff later. But but like um, I I guess like. After on acid is is like re-entering that state too, where it's kind of like, oh, I don't know what the fuck is going on with my body. I've been shitting for forever and nothing's come out, and then I, you know, and then I'm also shitting for forever, and a bunch of stuff is coming out, and I have to somehow stop myself from shitting when I had a tough time making myself shit in the first place, and it's all tied up in this idea of like also being horny and wanting to go downstairs and and hook up with this girl. Um, also flashbacks to him as a little kid in a bathroom or is it a dream or is it a flashback the bathroom with no stalls oh no that's real that that's that's the other thing i mean that's what he calls that one of his other when he was kicked out of uh the kindergarten i guess um which is the funniest the absolutely the funniest part of the entire novel that also felt like the most gurian moment yeah like a precocious little kid but there's a bathroom where there's no stalls and just toilets against each wall and he's just shitting and shitting and shitting to the point where the bowl is overflowing and he's missing his favorite song that they sing in class. And the entire class goes to check on him and he just starts singing. Hashem is here. Well, well yeah, it's, it's like interesting because they come in and it's like the girl that he has a crush on comes in and she starts crying and all these kids start crying and everyone's saying like, oh, no. Oh, oh, no, after. Oh, or, oh no, Gladman. Oh, no. Oh, no, Solly. And he uh, we get this. Very large print. Uh, yeah, but 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 like when it says ha like that, it's like that for a couple of pages. So it seems like he's laughing. Right. But then it cuts to the next page and it's it's uh the he's singing the the song. Hashem Hashem is here, Hashem is there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's Which like, is very funny. It's so funny. Just to think about like a little five year old like shitting enough to fill a toilet bowl and then singing in front of a his class that's all just sobbing because it's this terrifying thing happening <laughs> of this kid just like because i um, it's very hard like it is absurd to think of like a five-year-old shitting enough diarrhea to fill a toilet bowl to overflowing like he would die yeah um, we were talking about dropping weight before we started recording like that's a way to drop weight just to be have like a literal out-of-body experience where you diarrhea your entire body weight out how do you this is a conversation from before, but like my thing about those wrestlers that drop all that weight yeah. is like, how do they then go and do something athletic? That's the fucked up thing. Well, I think me. that there's there's a there's a gap in like you weigh in on like a Tuesday and the fight is on Saturday, so you like somehow recover. They must have a way to recover. Yeah. Do you just have to make weight? On you, the yeah. Tuesday? You, you weigh in and then after that you can get back to normal. Yeah. Oh, so you can like put all that weight back on. Yeah. Like no one actually boxes or wrestles or whatever at the weight that they weigh in. It's just like you have to get down to a certain weight. So like you bulk up or whatever to get in shape cut that weight and then repack it on like you're just expelling 
bodily waste, so but it's stupid. like it's like vital fluids and stuff. Yeah. That's so know. stupid. It's crazy. But yeah, so then the the first worst day of his life, which is I guess the second worst day of his life, or maybe the third anomaly, Gogol's foot shitting. He and his two friends are hanging out, and he's horny for the girl. Wants to get out of the bathroom. He hears a song. It's a Jane's Addiction song that he like gets horny with. Whatever. Eventually leaves the bathroom and finds them hooking up downstairs, and loses them both like literally and metaphorically as friends and whatever. Right. So yeah, all like uh, all on acid. All, all on, on acid. acid. Yeah. Which sounds like after having like an epic shit, but also it's also it triggers his writing career, right? Because the first line, the line that he writes when he's on the toilet. It ends up being the first line of his first good short story. Also, because he spent so much time in the toilet and was so in a rush to get out of there and, like, wipe himself, he gives himself hemorrhoids, which is why later in the narrative he's not at the museum that gets swallowed by the sinkhole because he was at home shitting. Yeah, or he was he he wasn't at home shitting, but he like felt like a little punk. Or he might the, have to the, do the, it. the hemorrhoids made him feel lousy. Right, but it's the hemorrhoids saved my life, which is the narrative. The, 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 the line that keeps coming up. Or the hemorrhoids killed me by saving my life. Right. Yeah. Which is a crazy thing. But it's a good line. It's a good line. Yeah. But then he refers to the line as hack. It's an, Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, and then, so there's a lot of shitting. Is there more shitting? No, I think I think those are the big three. Acid, bathroom. And then Google. Yeah. That's all like in the span of like 75 pages. Yeah, all of a sudden, like at the, at the very end of the book, it's like it becomes a book about shitting. Which is kind of funny. And then there's the very, very, very sweet section about him on Christmas with his with his wife. He's remembering as he's killing himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it made me think something like I, I that about this novel that kind of bummed me out a little bit, which is it's very clear to me that Levin is not only good at, but really enjoys writing these loving couples, right? Because you get it, the, the the parents and the instructions are some of like, that's like the most fun in the book. Hashtag goals. I, yeah, I would, yeah, okay. I wouldn't put it like that, but. <laughs> no, but they're, they are both great parents, I think, because their relationship with each other is so good. Yeah, and there's an interplay, like there's a, a like, um, it's not like, uh, it's not boring good. There's like an interplay of tension and teasing and, and stuff like that. And they're not like perfect, that. but they fight and they have blowout fights, but they're yeah. able to work through it because they're right for each other. Yeah, and there's something so nice about that. And he's so good at writing that stuff. And it's like, if, if there were anything in this book that I wanted more of. It's like I wanted more of Gladman and Daphne having fun and being in love with each other. I can't want more of that because if you have more of that, the it, book doesn't it really work. It. Yeah, and it, yeah. I guess what I want is I want Levin to write um, this is a homework assignment for for Mr. Adam Levin. Um, a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I know, I know you keep on. I I, I know you keep on trying because you said it in this book. You want to write a, a short book that doesn't. Um, have all of the bells and whistles of something like the instructions or bubblegum or even a Mount Chicago. Give us a little short romantic comedy. You, you, you like writing two people in love like this. Give us that. His final thoughts as he's dying, and he has this like beautiful, perfect way to kill himself. Painless, simple, easy. Yeah, which was a little scary to me. Yeah, that he describes it in the novel. That he go yeah, and and, and like uh, that like that group of nurses sent that gift over as a joke. I was like, ugh, <laughs> inappropriate. Well, it also reminded me of, and I might have, I've talked about it somewhere, but there's the 
the movie to live and die in LA where Willem Dafoe starts that yeah, out with like right. 10 minutes of like how to actually counterfeit money. Yeah. And people are like, hold on. Like we can't actually show this because like you just told people how to actually counterfeit real money. So this feels like a very like, I don't know if you should be like telling people. I, I, I love that movie because there's like zero moral center to it at all. Yeah. It's just like everything in it is bad. Movie rules. <laughs> um, so he, he, while he's, so he's walking, he's like, I don't want to go. He runs an errand. He's like, I don't want my last conscious effort to be to go to this thing. So he goes to the park where he remembers. He and Daphne had some good moments together. Then he goes home. But on his way home, he hears a song he does not recognize and drives him crazy a little bit. And so he goes and he starts, uh, you know, inhaling this gas and starts dying, but has this final tr- like sequence of thoughts, including realizing the song he heard was either Jenny from the Block or the song that it sampled. I thought it was kind of just like a funny... Yeah, he doesn't realize that it's the song that it samples because he doesn't know that song. Right. But the author knows it. Correct. And then he remembers this time that he and Daphne went to Paris where her family was for Christmas and he was kind of shitty and was like, I don't want to be here. I'm not needed here. I'll catch up with you later. Yeah, I don't even know. I I wouldn't even describe it as shitty. Because I could see, like, I 100% could see myself just being like, I don't want to, especially because, like, obviously he's Jewish. He doesn't, like, the Christmas tradition thing doesn't mean as much to him as it does to that family. But it feels like she and her family, at least, like, the, the kids want him there. Yeah, right. And I think him opting out might not be shitty, but it's not good. Like, it's... it's Yeah, it's it, it's a miscalculation, sure. And then he, and he learns his lesson, which is, like, I think what's good, like, that's why that's such a good little short story in there. Because it's, like, nobody's trying to hurt anybody. He just did something that was like a little bit off and mm-hmm. then and then she like course corrects him and it's like like he takes he takes great pains to to note like when he's feeding the birds he's like this is still good but like it would be better if she it was would here. be a little bit better if she was here and and that's the same way that they probably felt about him that morning with Christmas and there's also something very sort of profoundly sad where he's like this is not the last thing that I remember it's what happened like 0.6 seconds and he turns to his right and then it's just the end it's just Mm-hmm. He dies. Yeah. But it's, you know, a little bit of a tease, but it, it works. Yeah. Anything to say about the beavers and ducks? Oh, shit. That feels like a, a big thing. That You know, I, I didn't quite parse that the way that I would have liked. Like, I would have liked to reread that because I had a hard time. I mean, it, there's some Moses about it, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. clearly the, the thing that's going on. It becomes about COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what else? Royalty, maybe? Or like power politics Mm -hmm. so there's two like i was saying before there's two very very long chapters in this book there's the first one which is all of after's anecdotes him describing the five anecdotes and it's like a 150 or 200 it's like a very long chapter and this is the other long chapter which is his what you think is what he's writing but it's just the video or the audio or whatever that he's leaving for after before he kills himself his zero day set which is the the benefit concert and in there they're talking about that's where the acid and the shitting and you know all that, whatever and then there's this whole section in there where it's like a metaphor where there's like a duck that's going to be sacrificed which feels like the old you know pharaoh wanting all the jews like the firstborn or whatever and mm-hmm. sacrificing the seventh and whatever and the duck escaping and living with swans and then finding beavers and just being like a court gesture and it's like it's very weird it's just it feels like it comes out of nowhere some boner shame involved in it with his probably corkscrew dick definitely corkscrew dick he's a duck right yeah. there's a whole bit about how ducks have dicks Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to just like go cloaca. Like a cloaca. Yeah. yeah. And then it becomes about COVID and then it becomes about shitting in the bathroom. But there's like a probably like a 30 page section here. Who knows how long where it's just like 
bunch of animals, like anthropomorphic animals, kind of. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. I had a hard time with it, but given more time with this book, I'll, you know, I would reread it. And Is this a book you would want to reread? Oh, yeah. For sure. This is a book that I definitely uh, didn't get everything that I need, like, I th- that it has to offer on the first time around, right? Like, I think something that's good about it's well it's not i I don't know if it's good um there is this paradox of the best books that you need to reread are all really long they all they all take up so much of your time so it's like well i need to i I need to reread that book because i didn't get it all the first time but Mm -hmm. now i have to like find time to read a 600 page book Well, that was that was the thing that was staring me down i'm like i want to reread the instructions because i feel like i was not prepared for that conversation even though i had just finished reading it i was like where am i going to find time to read a 1050 page book again yeah yeah yeah. i did and it was worth it because i i now get that book in a better way well i think i think the trick to to that kind of rereading might be to do it you know 25 pages at at a time every other day or something like that and just not not force yourself to really know that like really right dig in because you were reading other stuff when you were reading the instructions right. too obviously because we've done a bunch of books in the meantime i think uh, i don't know if this is a way to end it but because we also have eggs emails i also i also have one more thing to talk about but in terms me. of i want to talk about this and then comparing it to a certain extent maybe unfairly to the instructions but the instructions you you're on record saying it's one of your favorite books of all time you think it's one of the best books. I, think, I think it's the i think it's the best book of the, of the since, century since it's been written okay i think whenever there is a new thing, and I don't know how you felt the same way about Hot Pink or Bubblegum or whatever. Mm-hmm. I know that when there is somebody who has made things that I love, I am afraid to dig into the new thing they make yeah. for fear that it could either tarnish the thing I like or the creator or whatever. And I know that you obviously prefer the instructions to this. Also, you just have the benefit of time. But does this inform the way you think about the instructions or live in in new ways oh it does it, yeah it does i think um yeah one of the things that i really like was thinking about the instructions uh about when i was reading this book was i was thinking about the instructions and interpreting it through this idea of behaviorism and Gurian influencing people? Yeah, specifically Gurian. I mean, we had talked about this before, and this is something that I wanted to talk about him with him in the interview, which is so. But like, remember, there's a section in the middle of the instructions. I think it's Emmanuel Liebman is writing, or it might be Brooklyn writing it, where he's talking about how it influences the way people speak. Oh, and, what and, you said in the episode. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how um, not only me, but people that I was, because I was originally part of a book club when we read it for the first time, and I noticed that in their emails and stuff, people were sort of mimicking the speech patterns and the spellings that Levin was using for these characters. And like now I think of that, I, 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 I read that and I think, oh, like we were all being affected by this in, in a very like manipulative behaviorism way whereas before and not manipulative in a bad way just manipulative no, no, no. in a but remember like i was referring to that as magic before yes right and it feels like i still think of it as 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 a kind of magic but do you think that like he showed you how the trick was done i don't know i mean i i like i don't think for example that i could write something that would make people do that so no i mean it's not something that's uh uh i can repeat Sure. So, so I don't. I don't know how the trick is done, but I, I. I. It's like a little peek behind the curtain. I also think, and this is a minor thing, but this is a thing that I noticed of you. Fuck. Fuck in. Oh yeah. Well, you sure. were. You were. You were 
But that's what I was talking about. But no, no, I know. But I, but that, I think it's just Levin. Like I don't think it's Gurian as much as just like because somebody in this character says fucking and it spells the same yeah, right, way. Right, 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 right. So I think that's just partly like it's not necessarily Gurian mm-hmm. as the influencing you. It's just like Levin. Yeah, yeah, sure. Which, which makes it almost scarier. Well, I don't know. Or maybe I mean, like I'm differently sure, scary. Yeah, yeah. The thing is that like it's funny that you said fuck that. Like that's where I was getting to essentially, <laughs> but you were not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can recognize within his work the work of other people. Sure. as well like yeah, i can yeah. see like in especially in the instructions like infinite jest is a very large part of that book yeah so i the, the, there are a bunch of a bunch of writers that when i'm when i'm looking at him i think like oh that's a philip roth like sure. that yeah. that feels like directly like a philip roth construct mm-hmm. uh that feels like a david foster Wallace construct that i see within him so i don't feel like you know i i don't know if it's levin pushing that on other people are doing that to them and it's you can see it being done to him so i don't know i don't i, I really i really don't know the answer to that but i it's like interesting the way that i felt the like the behaviorism stuff sort of unlocked it for me a little bit did so did, did this novel make you enjoy the, or like the instructions more or just it just changed the way you thought about it no i don't know maybe um I don't know if that's a fair question. Like, I don't, I don't exactly know what I'm trying to, I'm hoping. I mean, I finished this, this novel I mean? yesterday. Right. So like, this is, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to push through and, and, and have the, like the kind answers to the kinds of questions that you're asking because you right. need, no, you I, need I, a lot of time with something like that. Which I feel like is when you were like, for like months were like, can't wait to talk about the instructions. I'm like, I'm so scared. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier about the need to reread things. It's like the things that are always worth rereading or rewatching or whatever, the difficult stuff that's going to take you time. Because, like, yeah, like, I loved, well, I don't know, it's like a bad example, but, like, there's things that I love that, like, you can breeze through, but, like, there's not, like, the weight usually to something you can sort of tear through quickly. Like, you might love it, it might be as good, or you might think it's as good or whatever, but it's not doesn't necessarily mean, like, it's not necessarily worth revisiting because there's not depth there. Well, I'll also say that, like Bubblegum, I know we're not we're not really talking about Bubblegum because the, it's not it it's up. not something that both of us have read. But Bubblegum is a book that it's, I think much more difficult book than Mount Chicago, and more difficult than the instructions too. And when I finished Bubblegum, I was kind of like, eh, like it's all right. I didn't. Right. I, I. But but I've only read Bubblegum once. Mm-hmm. In the months that followed, I kept thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Like, like my brain would go back to stuff that happened sure. in Bubblegum and I would like over and over again go like, oh, and that's interesting. And this other thing that happened is interesting. And I found myself I couldn't I couldn't stop thinking about the book. So like my initial reaction was like not a, it was lukewarm. And then when at the end of that year, I was like, what were my favorite books this year? I was like, OK, well, Bubblegum is the top five book that year for me, I think, even, even though like when I finished it, it was like, you know, the three stars or whatever. Yeah, if, it, if, it, if it doesn't leave you. Yeah. I think that's also like what what does good mean? It's like the, if you're making a list of like what books stuck with me the longest or influenced me the most or did I spend the most time thinking about, right? Yeah, I mean, I thought about this this book, Mount Chicago, in terms of how much I like it. In 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 terms of like other books that I've read this year and which of these books I'm more likely or want to read again. And the answer is Mount Chicago is probably the book that I'm most likely to reread of of all the books that I've read this year. So uh, whatever flaws that I, that I see in it now, or like when I, when I like sort of dis say in like a dismissive way that I think it's quote unquote sloppy or whatever, it's like, you know, I'm obviously going to return to it and, and like rethink those things. Anything else to say about, well, we didn't talk about the mayor at all, which is something that I thought like, 
uh, I had this conversation with Meg earlier today where I was like, the egg, there felt like something Trumpian about the mayor. And she was like, I don't see that at all. And I was like, it felt, it felt to me like a bit of a satire of, of Trump. Him seeing his life as a movie kind of? No, no, no. Insofar as like, uh, his like speech patterns and misuse of words and these sort of, uh, sentence constructions that were like loopy and circular and things like that um and and i the the answer is that i actually i don't think that it's a, a parody of of trump it's probably a parody of multiple chicago mayors and, and all I, politicians right? yeah yeah and i just don't i, I i'm just not like because because you reflect again on rahm emanuel pronouncing don delillo don delilio which is in the introduction as well right. so it's like it's sort of like this pastiche of of those kinds of politicians. I do think that the mayor is significantly more empathetic to everyone than, than Trump is, for example. So, well, I do think that there's something that I, I texted you because you, 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 when you were starting to read this, like I started reading this before you and then you finished it before me because you read more and you read faster. But I said to you, you're like, this book is so sad to me. I think it's about like, it's so depressing oh. to me to think about Levin basically writing a novel in which everybody he knows and loves dies. And I was like, yes, but I see it as this like nihilistic, like nothing matters, just be good to the people who are good to you or whatever. And I think that there's something like the cynical, because it does feel like through big portions of this text that Levin, not that he's above the world, but like a lot of the world sucks. Like people yeah, suck I, and things I, suck. I'll, I'll also say that it, another thing in the in the introduction is he refers to himself as a nihilist and a misanthrope. And uh, I don't I don't buy the misanthrope part. I, I, I don't buy it. I think it seems to me like he loves people very, very much. Yeah. I think that there's something to the mayor where it's just like, yeah, fuck politics. Fuck those guys. Fuck that guy in particular. Mm-hmm. All this stuff sucks. But the mayor is also like a good hearted dope, right? I know. But also like, do you want that? Do you want a good hearted dope no. running a city? I, do, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want anybody running a city. I'm a, you know. But yeah, I thought like there was something like it's, it's, it's nihilistic, but it's also optimistic like nothing matters except for the things that do matter i don't know i'm not well versed well i mean that's what he says in 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 the beginning too it's like what 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 is it like and he's like everybody's terrible except for the people that you love by which i mean except for the people that i love it's like yeah i guess that's true yeah okay read the eggs email meg's reaction to mount chicago i like this book gogol is by far the best character i loved her journey and i loved reading the sections from her perspective I like the insertion of Levin as a kind of character, because at first it seemed like he was, oh, if you want to email us, lottery at cage, I feel like I don't do that enough, lottery at cageclub.me, email in about this, about the instructions, about any book that we've covered or not, lottery at cageclub.me, thank you. Because at first it seemed like he was perfect, preemptively telling you that it wasn't about him, This I think we talked about this before, let's see where she goes with this, but then as you go through the novel, you realize that it was acting like a kind of reverse psychology and we begin to see that after and Gladman could be two sides of the same coin, the coin being Adam Levin. I feel a little bit more okay with saying that than I usually would about an author given that he has pictures of himself and says that's how the characters look at certain ages. Mm, yeah, right. One of the notes that I wrote from the second chapter was that I was giving me Man in the High Castle vibes, which is a, a where the Nazis win World War II. Like that's what that book and show I guess are about, I think. Yeah. See where she's going with this. I don't have any concrete reasons. Okay. I, I, I asked her about that and she was like, I don't know. <laughs> but I find it interesting that I thought of that way in the beginning and they were, there was that whole alternate history part of the novel within that MP3 recording. I think this book would be a very interesting one to read again, knowing everything going in. Well, let's talk about what she means by alternate history part of the MP3 
I think it's an MP4. It's a video, it's an MP4, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no COVID in the book, right? But there is in in the in the beavers and ducks. In the beavers and ducks, there is like a COVID analog, mm-hmm. right? So that's what that's what she's talking about. The 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 book is an alternate history to the world that we live in, and then the story that he's telling functions as a history. So the, yeah, that 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 feels like a man in high castle thing, kind of, but it, not in the second chapter, which is what Meg's talking about. I do think that like the the COVID thing, and this is something that like. I remember hearing people have conversations about like when it all started. It's like, yeah, okay, I'm a creator of a TV show uh-huh. or something. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought too. Do you want to have your thing be about COVID? And the answer is probably not. Like, right. there's some 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 series did mid like Mr. Corman the 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 Joseph Gordon Levitt show on Apple. That did like your favorite TV show. That did like a mid season pivot where because like they were filming it and they were just like COVID happened. And they was like, fuck it, it's a COVID season now. And then the rest of the episodes were about him like teaching from home and, and stuff then it got like canceled. that. Sure. Um, but there, there are shows where it makes sense, like Superstore. If you want to do a show about like a Walmart type thing, where like they're dealing with COVID, like that makes sense. But like you don't need to show a season of like Succession where like everybody has COVID. It's like, what's this going to do? Like, yeah, exactly. Um, but but there is a thing where it's like you're writing a book and it's specifically like this is happening in 2020, right. and then it's like there are so many people out there with like sniper rifles ready to be like, but where's the COVID? Why? Like, why didn't, uh, uh, you didn't mention the COVID where's the COVID. And they, and they're like such sticklers for that kind of realism that like, and I, I'll also say, and this is not to, not to harp on bubblegum, but this is something that live in like in bubblegum. There's no internet. It's a, it's a current world. Everything's the same except for, there's no internet. This guy's picking and choosing what he wants. Yeah, yeah. There's no internet, but there are this these like little animals that are called curios. I'm still rolling around the end of the book in my head. It's interesting. Well, also we didn't talk about that after basically packs up everything and moves to California to maybe be with Sylvie. But I, maybe not. No, he he's he he knows that it's stupid to be with Sylvie, but he's going there to be an agent anyway. Yeah. He's also going to like maybe buy her a bird or a car or both or something. Car earlier, bird at the end. It's interesting because I think it ends on a more or less positive note, albeit very abruptly. Like, Gladman's story just feels utterly depressing from start to finish. He loses his entire family in one day, struggles to stay alive for Gogol, and when he's finally about to end his suffering, he's distracted and not able to die in peace. I don't know about that. Well, I think you have to look at... Right, you have to return to Apter's time as a social worker, right? And think about what you're empathizing with. Right. You, you like the sad thing is not the suicide. If anything, the suicide is a release. Right. The sad thing are the, is the conditions that led to the suicide. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't I, I think that that's like an, an important thing to consider when you're when you're reading this. Then we have after, though, whose life on the upturn. Did he ever really have a downturn? and who is about to embark on yet another new beginning. And if we accept them to be two sides of the same coin, there is a balance to them, even though one life was filled with suffering and the other was all potential. It does feel like, and I thought that when I was thinking about the, like, are they the same person, where Levin was just like, these are two different ways that my life could have gone, even though neither is necessarily the way it could have gone, but, like, one is, like, struggles in obscurity, but as a beloved artist. The other is, like, nobody really knows who he is, but he's, like, wealthy and powerful and behind the string, behind the scenes pulling strings. It's like, yeah. I feel like I could have written a much longer email had I finished this book sooner and had more time to write this. All in all, a great book, and I'd like to reread it one day. Well, Egg, a champion as always, just reading. Yeah, she got it done. Entirely too much for this podcast, given that she is. <laughs> she doesn't have to. Like, it's like we, you and I have to read this. She'd be like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. But every single week. Well, you know, some 
using egg as an example she's also a person who who like runs so like i i think that there is a pleasure to the rigidity of the schedule to like to like the discipline of it which i'm the same way like with with reading it's like i have a stack of books and it's like i'm gonna get through these books and like you know my I, i don't have i ever gone gone through my reading like process here on the show no it seems insane um i have like my one rule my one hard rule is that i never watch more than i read on any given day i know that so if i if i watch a movie like if i watch a two and a half hour long movie that means that i'm reading for two and a half hours that day at least other than that i try to read 50 pages of whatever like my main fiction book is I try to read 50 pages of whatever my vegetable book is, and then I have a third book that I that I read before bed, which is like uh, probably I read about 25 pages of that. But that but that depends on when I get tired and how much I can I can do. So like I'm trying to read trying to read 125 pages a day, um, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. But I you know I try to do it. And if I if I'm not getting my reading done then i will not watch television or or a movie that day at all yeah like that's the difference i think is that my the things i quote unquote have to do every day it's the simpsons seinfeld king of the hill whatever the thing that i'm watching a lot of television every day yeah even though those are really easy shows to watch no no no. it's like it's like 20 minutes of that yeah i want to read 40 pages okay which is lately or the last like since we started the podcast almost exclusively books that we've done here yeah. And then, like, I try to do, like, a movie a day, but, like, which usually happens, not always, but a lot of those are also pre-planned out because they're for a podcast or for something, right? So, like, it's just a different way prior to, like, that's how you, that's how you read 30,000 pages in a year, like you do, or how you watch 300 movies in a year like I do, which is, like, you find the time, you also don't have a social life. Yeah, I don't have a social life Exactly. Yeah. This is our, this is our social time. Like, Who Weekly, one of my favorite podcasts, did a segment recently where somebody called in and was just like how do you do all the things you do because like i feel like i want to watch more tv i want to read more books i want to do this or this and i don't have time for any of it i can't figure out how you guys are all and like the way they broke it down was fascinating to me because i feel like i do more than most people but i also like there's so much more that i feel like i'm not getting to mm-hmm. like movies that i want to see that i don't have time for books that i want to read that i don't have time for games i want to play that i don't have time for but it's just a matter of prioritizing what you care about it's also yeah it's it's especially with books because, like, part of me does feel like I can watch every movie that I want to watch in a year. Every movie that comes out that I really want to see, I, I, can, I can do that in a year. Um, books, but you can't read every book you want to read. It's a, no, it's impossible. I could read... And I feel the opposite. I, I could read every second of every day for the rest of my life, and I would read one hundredth, one thousandth, one millionth of all the stuff that I actually want to read. Uh, and that's, you know, and, and, and I know that you said earlier, this is something that people say all the time. You said earlier that I read faster than you. The answer is that I don't no, read you read, you read more than I do. I, I, I read, I read like, I read fairly slowly. I you think. read longer than I do. Yeah. I just, I just spend more time doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, one thing that I am very good at is, and this is just the way that my brain works. I'm good at sitting in one place and paying attention to a single thing for a very long amount of time. Yeah. My brain has not been ruined by my phone yet. That you know of. That I know of. I mean, I definitely probably have some fucked up brain thing going on, but... Oh, yeah, without a doubt. What are we doing next week? Now, uh, well, we have the we have the Levin interview. 
So next week is, or next week is going to be the interview with Adam Levin, author of this book and of The Instructions and Bubblegum and Hot Pink. And then after that, we have Literally Show Me a Healthy Person by Darcy Wilder. You were talking about how you can't really, we talk, maybe we talked about it on the episode, you can't really find that book. That book's on Amazon again. It's back on Amazon. Oh, cool. So cool, cool, cool. it's out there. I think we might say on that episode, hard to find. There's the audiobook, but you can also buy, at least as of a week or two ago, which is now a month ago for you, the listener, or whenever you listen it's to this. It's too complicated. It's too complicated. Explaining our schedule is too complicated. Every time I bring this up, I only think about the pre-tape call-in show, which yeah. I bring up every time, but it just nothing matters. But yeah. go on Amazon, you can find it. It's a great, it's short, it's wonderful. Oh, uh, by, yeah, by the way, one last thing. Um, today's crime is slashing people's tires. Are we not calling Matt? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> At LotteryPod on Twitter and Instagram. No, not Instagram. Usually we call Matt before we do the email. We haven't called Matt in, like, months. Yeah, give him a call. See if he's up for it. <laughs> you know, that Camper Van Beethoven song came on my... Uh, His intro music? My, yeah, but it came on randomly on my uh, Spotify. At Lottery Pot on Twitter and Patreon. Keep reading. Crime from earlier. Mon <laughs> mal 